When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a presidential podcast. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. In 1968, the country was tearing itself apart. It was the year, said Washington wise man Clark Clifford, quoting William Manchester, that everything went wrong. The inner cities burned. In Cleveland, young black men took up rifles and fired at policemen parked in their cars, passing the time, lashing out at a system that had abandoned them except to incarcerate them. National Guard troops marched on city asphalt and broken glass to quell riots. Men of fighting age burned their draft cards and fled to Canada to avoid a war America was losing in Vietnam. On campus, they pushed and shoved and sat in. The two great protest movements, the fight for racial justice and the fight to end an immoral war, shared an awful kinship. In the spring of that year, in April, Martin Luther King was shot down, and in June, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. The nation was jumpy and jumping at little noises in the night. But the unrest wasn't uniform. Conservatives in the South and Midwest had frayed nerves too, but they revolted at the excesses of the protest movement, the protests against the war and the demands of inner-city African Americans. And they hated the cultural rot that seemed to be eating America from the inside. The Republican Coordinating Committee met and charged the nation was, quote, rapidly approaching a state of anarchy. In the White House, a president who had mastered tragedy in 1963, using the legacy of his predecessor's death to do more than any president since FDR, seemed impotent. Vietnam was a bottomless pit, and he fed it with young men and money, money was that was a double waste, because he'd promised that he would use it to rebuild the nation at home. The pictures on the three television sets in the president's office flickered. From smoldering city blocks to jittery emergency movement of medical teams trying to save wounded Marines. Fast-breaking developments around the world, from Prague to Hanoi to Saigon to Paris to Chicago, all seemed to lay beyond Lyndon Johnson's reach. He was limping out of office, having been rebuked by his own party in the primaries that year. But then in the summer, he was handed an unexpected lifeline, a chance to make one last great act to burnish his legacy and cement that legacy as well. He was given the chance to pick a Supreme Court Chief Justice and an Associate Justice to replace the man he was elevating on the bench. Long after he was gone, after Johnson was out of office, the court would rule. And if he could pick the Chief Justice and an Associate Justice, the court would rule with his vision, the same vision for the country, shielding the programs that Johnson had put in place and carrying on the work of protecting the rights so long denied to minorities and the poor and the marginalized. The man once known as the master of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson, simply needed to master the Senate one last time before leaving office. He knew how to do that in his bones, or so he thought. Our whistle stop today is June 13, 1968. Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, is visiting the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. The Chief Justice had just turned 77 on March 19th, and he was calling on the president to tell him that he was retiring. He felt that in his old age, he had lost a step, mentally. 
This was like Babe Ruth coming to the clubhouse to hang up his cleats. From 1953 to 1969, the Warren court was like no court before it, because no court before it had played a greater role in determining the direction of its time. It was an activist, liberal, and controversial court, expanding civil rights, civil liberties, judicial reach, and the federal power, all in dramatic strokes. Under Warren's leadership, the court had ended school desegregation, ended school prayer, protected the rights of communists, pornographers, the innocent until proven guilty, and implemented the one-man-one-vote ruling ordering legislative reapportionment, which had the effect of ending the overrepresentation of rural areas in state legislatures, as well as the underrepresentation of the suburbs. The Supreme Court believed it was readjusting long-standing racial imbalances in the country, but conservatives railed at the unelected justices who were changing American culture. At one time in parts of the country, there was a spate of billboards and bumper stickers that read, Impeach Earl Warren. President Eisenhower called the Warren appointment, quote, the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. Warren had presided over 15 court terms, but he wasn't really putting down his gavel because he wasn't able to recall exactly what stare decisis meant at the Supreme Court quiz night. He was worried about the long-term legacy of the court, and he wanted to resign early so that he could make sure Johnson could name his successor. Both he and Johnson thought Republicans would win the presidency given the war, the rising crime rate, and the riots in the streets, and that meant a Republican president would pick the next justice and the next chief justice. Warren was also a lifelong enemy of Richard Nixon's. They both come up in California politics, and Nixon was charging that the Warren court had, quote, coddled criminals and fostered permissiveness. So Warren didn't want Nixon to get a chance at naming the next seat. Here I'm quoting from uh, Fortas, The Rise and Ruin of a Supreme Court Justice by Bruce Allen Murphy. Quote, the idea of Nixon getting his hands on a court seat, let alone his court seat, was unacceptable. The Supreme Court is supposed to be devoid of politics, of course, but here we see one of the many instances in American history where, of course, politics was right in the center of the whole thing. Warren wanted to deny the prize of a lifelong foe, Nixon, and Johnson had the opportunity to squeeze out one last triumph from his presidency in the waning period. And we should note here, if it hasn't occurred to you already, wise whistle-stop listeners, that the idea of nominating and confirming in an election year, this is 1968, was not considered unlikely or aberrant the way it now is and has been, and that's one of our underlying themes here, uh, Merrick Garland named in an election year by Barack Obama, who was, like Johnson, leaving office. Republicans said that was aberrant behavior, but here in 1968, there was no such norm, which is why Warren could retire early knowing that Johnson would be able to name his successor. If the norm existed that a president shouldn't name in a presidential year, then Warren would have retired earlier. Lyndon Johnson had someone in mind as soon as he heard the news from Warren, and that person was Abe Fortas, who was already serving on the court as an associate justice. Fortas was a longtime friend of Johnson's. He'd represented Lyndon Johnson in 1948 in the contested Democratic senatorial primary. Johnson had won that primary by only 87 votes. His opponent, the former governor of Texas, Coke R. Stevenson, persuaded a federal judge to issue an order taking Johnson's name off the general election ballot while the primary results were being contested. There were serious allegations of corruption in the voting process, including 200 votes for Johnson that had been cast in alphabetical order. 
Johnson asked Fortas, then a lawyer, for help, and Fortas persuaded the Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black to overturn the ruling. Johnson then went on to win the general election and became a U.S. senator. Fortas was a confidant of Johnson's, advising him on basically everything. He was his consigliere. It was his idea that Johnson set up the Warren Commission to investigate Kennedy's assassination. Fortas also in his career, and this will come back and be important later, represented Clarence Earl Gideon in his appeal before the Supreme Court. Gideon, a poor man from Florida, had been convicted of breaking into a pool hall. He could not afford a lawyer and none was provided for him when he asked for one at trial. And so in its landmark ruling of Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court held for Gideon, ruling that state courts are required under the Sixth Amendment to provide counsel in criminal cases for defendants unable to afford their own attorneys or lawyers. You know this from every cop show, that uh, the, the criminal is always informed that if he doesn't have counsel, one will be provided to him. Well, that's because of Gideon v. Wainwright. This was one of the Warren Court decisions that so irked conservatives under the heading of coddling criminals, and that would come back to bite Fortas in the keister, although he was a lawyer in Gideon v. Wainwright, not responsible for it, but we'll see from the back and forth of his hearings that uh, having not been on the court was no defense against being blamed for the court's decision. So here is the historical significance of this moment, of naming Fortas, and then by elevating Fortas from the court, Johnson was going to name Homer Thornberry, a judge and also another longtime friend, to fill Fortas's slot. So he was basically getting two shots here, elevating a friend to the chief judge position, and then sliding in Thornberry, uh, who was another pal of Johnson's. But here's why this moment in history is uh, important. This is what we call the billboard paragraph when we write. And I'm paraphrasing here the wise work of Whistle Stop house historian Brian Rosenwald, who Whistle Stop listeners also know as the Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher. This is the self-same one. Rosenwald's point is that this is a historical turning point for several reasons. One, it kicks off a new era of judicial fighting. There had been fights before, but not like this. This kicks off the, the fighting that we can then trace to Bork and Thomas and others taking us all the way to our current moment. Also, this creates a fiction at the end of it called the Thurmond Rule, named after the GOP senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, also Dixiecrat nominee for president in 1948. And this rule, the Thurmond Rule, suggested presidents shouldn't make court appointments in an election year. Now, this norm was created out of thin air, and it's one that has had some staying power. But we'll talk about whether the norm is real or is only honored when it's politically beneficial for whichever side happens to be honoring it at the moment. And then two other historical points. One, this ushers in the filibuster as a tactic for blocking a Supreme Court nomination. A rather important question now as Democrats figure out what to do with Donald Trump's first Supreme Court nominee. And then the second point I'd make is that this is the one that I was trying to make so dramatically in the lead with all of that talk of broken glass and dissipated presidents. This was one of the great political blunders of Johnson's presidency, a festival of miscalculations by the master of the Senate that robbed him of his chance to cement his legacy and, as we'll talk about at the end, uh, represented a kind of poignant conclusion to a presidency that had started with such masterful success in the Senate. And the pick immediately took on political overtones because while the Johnson-Earl uh, Warren meeting had been secret, it leaked. 
And why did it leak? Because Earl Warren blabbed his mouth on the phone. Here's a news account from the time explaining what happened. Warren's telephone conversation, wherein he gave his reasons for leaving the court, was overheard by a woman reporter who had gone to the university club to cover a wedding. Malvina Stevenson, Washington correspondent for the Tulsa World and several other Oklahoma radio stations, stopped in the club to greet a friend. Warren's shouts from the phone booth interfered with their conversation. The conversation took place the day after it was first reported that Warren was retiring. Warren was overheard to say that the problem was to get a suitable successor who was a liberal and not, quote, not in the image of a Republican choice that might be dictated by a President Nixon and a Senate Republican leader, Dirksen, close quote. So you see there, Warren is, is anticipating Nixon's victory and also importantly, Everett Dirksen, now the minority leader, if the Senate gets more Republicans in the election 1968, you'd have Dirksen running the show in the Senate. Back to the article, Mrs. Stevenson said in a broadcast, because, of course, she overheard what Warren said and went and broadcasted it. She said in her broadcast that Warren was, quote, rushing to retirement, not only because he doesn't like Dick Nixon, but mainly because he doesn't want Republican Senator Everett Dirksen to control the new court appointments. Warren confided to a friend that if Nixon is elected president, Dirksen would be given the appointment. She said in the broadcast, Dirksen has already tried to ruin the court. So that was the news as it broke out. But um, on June 22nd, Clark Clifford and Abe Fortas followed the president to the family quarters of the White House. After a Saturday morning session on Vietnam, Clark Clifford, the wise man of Washington, is now the Secretary of Defense. And the president confirmed to Fortas that he was going to name him to succeed Chief Justice Earl Warren. He named Fortas and Thornberry not just because they were his boon companions, but it was a Senate strategy. And this is important. Two, two, two people to keep in mind in that Senate strategy. One, Richard Russell of Georgia, Democrat. Two, Everett Dirksen. We've already heard about him, and we'll come back to him for a moment. According to Democratic advisor Clark Clifford, who Johnson consulted on all this, even though he was Secretary of Defense, Clifford had been counselor to the president. And so he was joining in, in the deliberations here. The idea behind picking Homer Thornberry was that since he was from Texas, senators like Richard Russell of Georgia and others from southern states would be enthusiastic enough about Thornberry, even though he was a bit of a liberal, he was nevertheless from the South, that they would be okay to accept Fortas, who was much more liberal. So Homer Thornberry was kind of like a shoehorn to get Fortas in. Let's pause for a minute on on uh, Senator Russell. One of the three Senate office buildings is named after him. And so his white marble statue graces the circular entrance hall of the Russell Senate office building. And so when you go to visit senators, boom, there's Richard Russell um, greeting you. Johnson named Russell to the Warren Commission, but the two had clashed in civil rights where Russell had been the, leading the filibuster to block the Civil Rights Act. And so, and if you've ever seen the famous picture of the Johnson treatment, it's Russell. Well, there are a couple of famous pictures, but in one of them, it's a four pane picture. And it's Johnson giving the, the Johnson treatment to Richard Russell, nose to nose, leaning over him, totally getting in his face. And this was the kind of relationship you used to have in the Senate, where you'd have clashes and fights, and then friendships and alliances. And Russell had incredible esteem for Johnson's ability as a leader of the Senate. Russell was a leader in the 60s as well, so they were clashing even when Johnson was in the Senate. But a few days after Kennedy's assassination, here's what Russell said. He said, you know, we could have beaten John Kennedy on civil rights, but not Lyndon Johnson. And I'm spending a little time on Russell here because if this is a story about Johnson's failure of power with respect to the Senate, and Russell ends up being one of the ones who causes that failure, we're just loading up the narrative here because 
Russell was the one who spoke most glowingly of Johnson's singular ability to control the Senate. And here is Russell talking in Jack Bell's book, which is called The Johnson Treatment. Here's what Russell said. He said, Johnson doesn't have the best mind on the Democratic side of the Senate, isn't the best orator, and isn't the best parliamentarian, but he's got the best combination of all three qualities. But Thornberry was no great jurist. Here's Clifford. Thornberry was an affable and well-liked politician, but no one had ever considered him Supreme Court material. The only reason for his nomination was a friendship going back over 40 years between the two men, meaning Thornberry and Johnson, since they were teenagers when Lyndon Johnson's father was a member of the Texas legislature. When Johnson became senator, Thornberry took over his seat in the House of Representatives and later as Vice President Johnson obtained a federal judgeship for his old pal, even swearing him in on the front porch of the LBJ ranch. Clifford thought this idea was cockamamie. Now, you can imagine what it's like telling the master of the Senate that his idea for running these two guys and getting them confirmed in the, in the Senate was cockamamie. This was not going to go over well. But basically, Clifford's argument was that Republicans were pretty sure they were going to win in 1968 and they would resist. He suggested that Johnson, instead of naming Fortas and Thornberry, name a moderate non-political Republican instead of Thornberry as a way to win over GOP support, essentially get an even better shoehorn to get Fortas in than Thornberry. In Clifford's account of this conversation, it takes place while Johnson has changed into his pajamas and is in bed for, as Clifford puts it, one of those oddly time rests that always seem to refresh him. The president responded to Clifford's idea of nominating a Republican, well, I don't intend to put some damn Republican on the court. White House counsel Larry Temple also agreed with Clifford and tried to make this same case. But according to Robert Dalek, the historian Robert Dalek, who uh, writes about this in Flawed Giant, Johnson refused to listen to Temple. He argued with both Clifford and Temple, saying he understood the politics of the situation much better than they did. Quote, what office did you ever get elected to? He asked Temple. Johnson might have been right. According to Dalek, because the headcount showed 62 supporters and five probable backers of the Fortis Thornberry bank shot, and that would be a total of 67, which would easily defeat a filibuster. And here's how Johnson hoped to put together the coalition. He'd use Senate Minority Leader Everett Dirksen. That would help him deliver enough Republicans because Dirksen was a Republican. And Richard Russell of Georgia, who we've already talked about, was the Democrat with strength in the South who, if he had enthusiasm for Thornberry, he'd keep those Dixiecrat Democrats from defecting too much. That was how he would put together his coalition. Just to give you a little taste, though, of what the political situation was for Johnson and why he might have been overshooting here, I've talked about the, the situation in the country, of course, but here's George Reedy, who was press secretary for Lyndon Johnson. He wrote a book called The Twilight of the Presidency, in which he talks about the lame duckness of a presidency and how that can affect them. He uses as his example to illustrate how painful lame duckedness can be to a president. He chooses this specific time in Johnson's presidency. So here's Reedy. The case of Lyndon Johnson is much to the point because the erosion of his power became apparent within weeks after his announcement that he was withdrawing himself from contention in March of 1968. The last 10 months of his administration were marked by frustration on every issue. On every issue, President Johnson was unable to command even a respectful hearing. But Johnson had to take the shot because as he wrote in his memoirs, he feared that a conservative court would lead to, quote, a reversal of the philosophy of the Warren court and the dissipation of the forward legislative momentum we had achieved during the previous eight years. Here's Johnson's domestic advisor, Joe Califano. 
Johnson had won the congressional fights over consumer health and environmental legislation, but he expected disputes about these issues to inevitably play out in the courts long after he left the White House. And he intended to win them as well after he had gone. So Johnson starts preparing the way. And how does he prepare the way? Well, he got Joe Califano to talk to Henry Ford to put pressure on Senator Robert Griffin of Michigan, a Republican who was the principal organizer of the anti-Fordist forces. Griffin immediately complained publicly that he'd been leaned on by a significant member in the Ford Motor Company. And he said that the White House was doing this across the board, making the naming of federal judgeships, which senators want, contingent on getting Fortis approved and forcing companies that benefit from government contracts to call the senators under the implicit threat that those contracts would disappear if they didn't put the arm on their senators and get them to vote for Fortis. Johnson also whispered that since Fortas would be the first Jewish chief justice, it would be an act of anti-Semitism not to support him. He was undermined in part, though, when Jacob Javits, the Republican senator from New York who was Jewish, said he didn't see any anti-Semitism in disputing whether Fortas should be elevated to the chief justice spot. Time magazine announcing the Fortas pick, which which was officially announced on June 26, 1968. The third branch of the U.S. government is intimate, unhurried, and arcane, almost totally devoid of pomp or visible drama. Yet the Supreme Court decision affect every American, living and unborn, and it is the final irrevocable judge of every president and Congress. Thus, last week, when Lyndon Johnson nominated Associate Justice Abe Fortas to be the 15th Chief Justice of the United States, his selection was almost as significant as the election of a new president in November. A president cannot be elected more than twice. A chief justice can remain at the head of the world's most powerful court virtually as long as he lives or desires. Expectable in almost every other way, the nomination nonetheless provoked an unexpected reaction, arousing more opposition in the Senate than any other court appointment since 1930 when Herbert Hoover's choice of John J. Parker was rejected by a margin of two votes. But Parker was denied the post because of labor and Negro antipathy, writes Time magazine. Fortas is opposed not for what he has done, but for what he is, the choice of a man who will be in office for less than seven more months, and the president close friend and confident to boot. The appointment smacked of, quote, cronyism at its worst, unquote, said Michigan's Robert Griffin, and everybody knows it. The charge of cronyism was reinforced by the fact that to fill the vacancy Left by Earl Warren's retirement and Fortas's move up, Lyndon Johnson appointed his old friend and fellow Texan, Homer Thornberry. So Robert Griffin of Michigan had 18 other Republican senators, and they signed a petition that would deny the president the right to put anybody on the court during the remainder of his term. At the present time, said Griffin, the American people are in the process of choosing a new government. By their votes in November, the people will designate new leadership and new direction for our nation. Of course, a lame duck president has the constitutional power to submit nominations for the Supreme Court, but the Senate need not confirm them, and in this case should not do so. Richard Nixon, who was a candidate, also thought this was a bad idea too. So we have basically a a very similar echo to what Donald Trump and other Republicans running for the presidency said when Antonin Scalia died in February of 2016. Now, the difference, of course, is that Merrick Garland, who was Barack Obama's choice for the seat, never got even a hearing. The claims at the time were that the Senate should not confirm, but nobody was saying that that Fortas shouldn't even get a hearing. And the problem was, for this argument, was that it stood on shaky ground. In In that century alone, which is to say the last century, six justices had been appointed in presidential election years. The last, William Brennan, was named by Dwight D. Eisenhower little more than a month before the 1956 elections, when the nation had also uh, a chance to change its leadership. 
John Marshall was appointed by John Adams a few weeks before Thomas Jefferson was to take office. Republicans knew because there was no norm blocking presidents from nominating justices in election year and because the president's party controlled the Senate, which is why it's different than the Merrick Garland case, because the president's party, Barack Obama's party, didn't control the Senate. Republicans knew that because they couldn't use their Senate leadership to block Fortas and because there was no strong norm against appointing in a presidential year, that they'd have to come up with some other argument against Fortas. So they called him a crony of the president. But the politics were more scrambled back then, with Republicans and Democrats joining the president on some issues and members of his own party, Democrats fighting with him tooth and nail on others. And that's what we'd have here. Dixiecrats, conservative Democratic senators who did not like the president and did not like the liberal Warren court. Democrat Robert Byrd of West Virginia said he would, quote, do everything in my power to oppose Fortas who he referred to as a leftist member of the court. And Russell Long, a Democrat from Louisiana, said Fortas was, quote, one of the dirty five who sides with the criminal against the victims of crime, the dirty five meaning five on the Supreme Court. On the issue of cronyism, one of the president's early defenders, and remember this is the key linchpin to his theory, was Republican minority leader Everett Dirksen, the Republican from Illinois. He'd called the charge of cronyism silly. You do not go out looking for an enemy to put them on the court, said Dirksen, whose mellifluous voice you all will remember from uh, the 1952 Republican convention when he came out against uh, Eisenhower and for Taft. And Dirksen further pointed out that President Lincoln, Truman, and Kennedy had all appointed friends or what the opposition was calling cronies. Dirksen even rebuked his own Republican, Griffin of Michigan, saying it's about time we be a little more circumspect about the kind of language we use. Fortas said Dirksen was a very able lawyer with sound philosophy. He also called Thornberry, a congressman of more, for more than 14 years, a very solid citizen. Dirksen said these ideas that they should be denied were frivolous, gossamer, and diaphanous. But in time, of course, this would change, and... Uh, like many of the predictions that we come across here in Whistle Stop, the journalists got it a little wrong. Here's Time Magazine. If the Republican rebels keep up the fight, the battle promises to be spirited, but probably not fatal for the president's men, who need only a simple majority for confirmation. And of course, that would be easy, with Dirksen and Democrats holding a close to two to one majority in the Senate. No one had used the filibuster to block a nominee before. In July, Johnson loses one of his key linchpins, though. Richard Russell of Georgia tells him on the 1st of July that he's, and this is again from Dalek, uh, he tells him he's not going to commit, he's not going to keep his commitment to support Fortas and Thornberry because Johnson failed to act on the appointment of Alexander Lawrence as a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Georgia. And that's what caused Russell to change his mind. Russell basically concluded that Johnson had intended to make Lawrence's appointment a condition of Fortas's confirmation. And Russell, Russell said to LBJ, this places me in the position where if I support your nominee for the Supreme Court, it will appear that I've done so out of my fears that you would not nominate Mr. Lawrence. He felt like he was being railroaded by Johnson and he didn't want to look like he was a giving in to that kind of pressure. Plus, he was a Southern Democrat supporting Abe Fortas, who was a big liberal so it was a tough spot for him to be in. This might have been a kind of nice exit ramp. It did real damage to the Johnson-Russell friendship. And Johnson loses a key voice in that coalition. Dixiecrats are against him. Southern Democrats, Dixiecrats against him. Now he loses one of the important ones. But it was at this point he lets go in the 1st of July. It's not public. It's just private. 
It was not standard for a chief justice to come before the Senate, but Fortas, who'd done well in his confirmation hearings at a, as an associate justice three years earlier, thought he could do well. So the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee began hearings on July 16th with Fortas making the first appearance ever by a nominee for chief justice. And he dropped something of a bombshell when he testified uh, that he had attended meetings with the president on Vietnam and urban riots, but he insisted he never advised Johnson on issues that could reach the Supreme Court. The two big issues that Fortas would face, by the way, just to billboard this a little bit, would be his relationship with Johnson, the so-called cronyism question, and his liberalism. His ties with Johnson were important for political terms, which is to say Johnson was unpopular. And so this was a way, if they were tight, to get back at Johnson. But also there's a separation of powers argument that the, the, the chief justice should not be advising the president on affairs that he might have to rule on as a justice. Perhaps the most colorful and certainly theatrical senator to take on Fortas was South Carolina's Strom Thurmond. The former segregationist and Dixiecrat nominee used the nomination to attack the court that he said was forcing liberal values on the entire nation. And also, Thurmond was perfectly happy to hurt the sitting president. He had described LBJ in 1966 as a traitor to the nation and to the South. And here I'm quoting from an American melodrama, the presidential campaign of 1968. Quote, of all the performances during the committee's hearings, Thurman's was by far the most memorable, surpassing even his own high standards of a bully raging pig ignorance and splenetic irrelevance. Knowing full well that Fordist must refuse to discuss individual cases on the grounds that it would rupture the constitutional distinctions between the legislative and judicial branches, Thurman nonetheless spent four hours putting questions to Fordist in the, this area a procedure that resulted in Fortas's refusal to testify being scrawled across the record no fewer than 50 times. So here's how it went down. Thurman persisted in, in asking questions about already decided cases, and the justice had to keep refusing to answer because separation of powers. And for each one of those refusals, Thurman de uh, developed his own refrain, reeling off Question after question after question about the Supreme Court rulings on voting rights and the rights of criminal suspects, and ending each one with, quote, and you refuse to answer that, unquote. And then Fortas would say yes, and he just kept this going on and on and on. And it made Fortas look like he was a, trying to dodge something. He was a shady, as opposed to defending the separation of powers, defending, basically, keeping separate the decisions of the Supreme Court and how they make their decisions, the decisions themselves, from Congress because the Supreme Court rules on the things that Congress does. Senator said Fortas, with the greatest deference to the greatest and the greatest respect, I assure you, my answer must stand. I cannot address myself to the question because I could not possibly address myself to it without discussing theory and principle. And the theory and principle I would discuss most certainly would be involved in situations we have to face in front of the have to face in the future. And he didn't want to look like he was prejudging something by discussing it in the non Supreme court context. Here is Thurmond giving a public taste of why he opposed Fortas. In the hearing this morning, I think it was clear that he answered the questions where he thought the answer would help him. He refused the answer and placed a screen between him and the questioner on the ones he felt would hurt him. He went out and spoke at law schools and gave his views in other places. He wrote a book and gave his views. I would see no objection why he wouldn't give his views to the Senate Judiciary Committee and to the Senate of the United States. As you well know, I did not support him when he became an associate justice. 
I have seen nothing since then that caused me to change my views. But legally, would you... I am strongly opposed to turning loose criminals on technicalities. I am strongly opposed to communists working in defense plants. I am strongly opposed to communist teaching in schools and colleges. I am strongly opposed to the Supreme Court, the federal government invading the rights of the states. And Justice Fortas has participated in decisions that do the very things I've just mentioned. I am familiar with his decisions. I am familiar with his positions. But the reason I'm asking these questions is to build a record so the Senate itself will know his positions and the public will know his positions. Because once the Senate is familiar with his record, and, and the senators are so busy they don't have time generally to read all the decisions of the Supreme Court, and once the public is familiarized with his record, I, I'm not quite sure but what the majority of the public and maybe a majority of the Senate will take the same position that I do concerning his confirmation. The most theatrical public exchange referred to a 1957 decision in Mallory versus the United States in which a confessed rapist's conviction had been overturned because his arraignment was delayed to permit an interrogation. Mallory! Thurman shouted, I want the word to ring in your ears, Mallory! Mallory! A man who raped a woman admitted his guilt and the Supreme Court turned him loose on a technicality, free to commit other crimes. As a justice of the Supreme Court, can you condone this? The problem with this line of inquiry, of course, was that the Mallory versus the United States court decision was decided in 1957, eight years before Ford has reached the Supreme Court. Thurman was pressing his outrage at the thought of the guilt going guilty going free. Are you after the truth? Thurmond asked Fortas, what difference does it make if there was a lawyer present or not? What difference does it make if you get to the truth? Fortas, in his response, suggested perhaps the difference might be the Constitution. He was visibly flushed and sat silent uh, before finally responding a little more. Senator, because of my respect for you in this body and my respect for the Constitution of the United States and my position as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I will adhere to the limitations I believe the Constitution places on me, and I will not reply to your question as you phrase it. Can you suggest any way that I can phrase it differently so that you can answer it, Thurman pressed? That would be presumptuous, Fortas answered. I would not attempt to do so. This is from Strom Thurman and the Politics of Southern Change by Nadine Cohotis. Finally, Thurmond asked Fortas if he didn't agree that the Supreme Court was the principal reason for the turmoil and the era of revolutionary conditions that prevail in Washington. Fortas did not respond. Reading a little bit more now from Thurmond and the Politics of Southern Change by Nadine Cohotis. Thurmond's performance earned him newspaper headlines, but James Lucier, one of his aides, later to work for Jesse Helms of North Carolina, wrote a blisteringly candid memo afterward. In my judgment, he said, our strategy in the Fortist hearings has been a disastrous mistake. The line of questioning did not appear to be a sincere attempt to investigate his views. Rather, it appeared to be an irrational attempt to delay and harass. Delay, very important. Harass, important. And this wasn't just a backlash on Thurman's part against the changing face of America or a nominee. He was doing Richard Nixon's work. He was his envoy in the Deep South, and if he could torpedo Johnson's court pick, he would give Nixon a shot at changing the court, and also, by the way, give Nixon uh, something he could, could campaign on, in the same way that Donald Trump was able to campaign on being the person to name the next justice to the Supreme Court uh, in 2016. Thurman was giving Nixon also a boost by playing out this horror show. Four hours of questioning. Can you imagine now, when Betsy DeVos was 
being nominated for Secretary of Education, obviously not as important as the Supreme Court, but senators only got five minutes each to question her. (laughs) So four hours, this was a different time. So just on the crime issue. So three days before Warren delivers the news to Johnson that he's stepping down, Johnson had convened the U.S. National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. This was a task force established to look into violence in America of all kinds. And that was That task force was formed only a few months after the release of the final report of the Kerner Commission, which looked into the violence growing out of the big city protests of the 1960s. So we hear a lot about American carnage today. This was a time when that idea of violence in the inner cities was absolutely at the center of the national dialogue. So for conservatives, much like Donald Trump today, it was the permissiveness of Democrats in the courts that had allowed all that madness to spread. And this was, you know, a real fear that was showing up on the televisions. And the Warren court rulings, conservatives said, had led to this. And this is three three rulings. One, the Gideon case, which we've talked about. In a lot of places in the country, a man was not afforded counsel if he could, or he could only get counsel if he could pay for it. And there were lots of people who were charged who didn't have the money. They were arrested and tried without any legal advice at all. So the Gideon case changed that, gave them uh, access to trial. Then, then there was the Escobedo case that determined when a man was in jail and asked for his lawyer, if his lawyer was available, he was entitled to have him there in jail with him. And then there's the Miranda case, which we know, which simply said that when the law arrests somebody, puts him in restraint, takes him away from his home and family, he's entitled to have representation of counsel, basically, and and not incriminate himself. So all of that, those rulings of the Warren court, Fortas was basically on the hook to responding for. And that was one. So that's one of the big problems for him was just that this was a way to attack liberals on the court and make him answer for that. But his other big problem was that while he was defending the separation of powers, he had his own separation of power problems. And the cronyism charge about Johnson wasn't just that they were connected uh, and that he was friends with an unpopular president. It was the fact that Fortas should not have been, as an associate justice, participating in an executive branch decision making because someday he might have to rule on those decisions, A, and B, you might have to rule just more broadly on the president. And so you couldn't be a member of both the executive branch and the judicial branch. And so at the beginning of the the um the hearing, he already admitted some of what he had done on Johnson's behalf, which including phoning Ralph Lazarus, the Columbus department store tycoon, and giving him a tongue lashing because Lazarus had basically said out loud that the Vietnam War was affecting the economy. It was really interesting, actually. We saw an echo of this in the in the, the Iraq War. Lazarus had basically said that the White House was downplaying the amount of money it was going to cost to to fight the war. And and Fortis, on, on Johnson's behalf, called him and... Um, lambasted him and said, how dare you say that? And uh, it turned out that Lazarus was right in much the way that some of the predictions about the cost of the Iraq war were right, even though Larry Lindsay, the economist inside the White House who made those predictions was kind of shoved out. And that was one of the reasons uh, for his doing so. But the big problem for Fortas is that he was essentially lying about the nature of his relationship with Johnson, both in kind and in depth. And according to this again is Dalek. Well, first of all, the most incendiary thing that he did was basically told Johnson about things that he was privy to only because he was on the Supreme Court. And the most incendiary connection is the one that Dalek writes about in Flawed Giant. In 1966, after becoming a justice, Fortas passed along court deliberations about an illegal eavesdropping case which might have discredited Robert Kennedy an LBJ foe of longstanding who might run against LBJ in 1968. This is in 66, but Johnson was worried that that uh, Kennedy might run against him. 
J. Edgar Hoover, FBI director, had falsely claimed that in 63, as attorney general, Kennedy had authorized an electronic surveillance of a Washington lobbyist, and that Washington lobbyist was later convicted of fraud. When the lobbyist's appeal reached the high court, the illegal wiretap was revealed, that is to say, the illegal wiretap ordered by Kennedy. That raised the possibility that Kennedy might have broken the law. And if Fortas gave that to Johnson and Johnson used that against Kennedy, it would hurt Kennedy and his political aspirations. Here's what Fortas said about this. If facts, as possessed by the FBI concerning Kennedy's approval of wiretapping, were made known to the general public, it would serve to completely destroy Kennedy. So Fortas was using his job to help Johnson politically, but he was lying even more than this. So he wasn't talking about that. He was suggesting this was kind of a counselary relationship, but he'd done so much more than he was letting on. He'd helped assess the Supreme Court's likely response should the president unilaterally impose wage and price controls. He'd been deeply engaged in shaping Vietnam and economic policies and advising the presidents on a variety of crises, ranging from the Detroit riots to the railroad strike. And worst of all, he had advised the president on the Penn Central case, which was pending before the Supreme Court. This is all from Joe Califano's book. Joe Califano, who was uh, Johnson's domestic policy advisor, and whose book on Johnson Triumph and Tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, The White House Years, I'm, uh, I'm quoting from and using liberally here. Here's Califano on Fortis and his testimony about his connections to Johnson. Fortis's testimony was so misleading and deceptive that those of us who were aware of his relationship with Johnson winced with each news report of his appearance before the Senate committee. Cronyism was now the least of the charges some of us feared. In other words, fraud being another one. And, and here's Califano's description of why they were so dumb, both Johnson and Fortas, in both Johnson elevating Fortas and then Fortas pretending they weren't as close as they were. And I think this tells us something interesting that about presidents and those who they surround themselves with. And this idea, not only that there's sycophancy, which we've always known about, but there's something else, which is that a president needs close people by him because they give him a sense of comfort and because he can't turn to lots of people. Here's Califano. Johnson and Fortas, each in his own way, believed they were exempt from many of the traditional rules. Fortas was unwilling to step away from the exhilaration of involvement in the most exciting and challenging matters his client ever faced, his client being the president. As so often happens in Washington, Fortas came to believe that he was above conventional standards of acceptable conduct. For his part, the president was convinced that faced with the most demanding job in the free world, he was entitled to have any advice and counsel he wished. Given a mandate to revolutionize the social and economic structure of the nation, he had a right to any and all information and advice independent of traditional standards of constitutional government, especially when the ends were so worthy, social and economic justice so long denied to the black, the poor, and the old. And the means of his opponents were so nefarious, filibusters to block civil rights legislation, outright defiance of the law, character assassination. That's all Califano explaining the specific case here, but also giving us a guide to why presidents quickly break out of the norms, and in some cases the laws that constrain them, because the job gets itchy, and you want to break out of the constraints to, to relieve that itchiness. But the real problem for Fortas in the end was that he got nailed for taking money from people with business in front of the Supreme Court. After the summer recess, okay, so the hearings are taking place. One of the things Strom Thurmond and the Republicans and Democrats opposing the choice want is for the, the hearings to drag out into the fall. Keep The longer that Fortas is hanging out there, the more trouble he's in. And so there's a summer recess, which is great for the opponents of Fortas. When the hearings resumed in September, the committee revealed that Fortas had accepted $15,000 as a fee for teaching a series of summer 
programs at the American University. The money came from a businessman who might figure in cases that would appear before the court, and the payment was about 40% of the justice's salary. This is 1968, so $15,000 is 40% of his total salary, and it seemed excessive given that it was seven times the amount paid to any other summer seminar teacher at the university. Richard Russell now had his chance to break out, even though he joined the opposition earlier in July, he was now using this American University revelation to justify his vote against Fortas. And I'm quoting again from Dalek, the information that Fortas had accepted $15,000 for teaching and the manner in which it was handled, Russell wrote the president, make it impossible for me to support Justice Fortas. The matter raised, quote, a very great question of ethics and propriety. Also, we had over the summer the violent clashes in Chicago. Here's a news account of the state of play because of that. Furthermore, the violent clashes between the Chicago police and young demonstrators during the Democratic National Convention were believed to have won new recruits to the drive against confirmation. This is because the Chicago events hardened congressional demands for, quote, law and order. Mr. Fortas has been widely accused by critics of being, quote, soft on criminals in some court decisions. Another factor that may prove damning to confirmation involves Supreme Court decisions on pornography. Three films described by some Senate viewers as degrading were shown to some of the senators and staff aides this week. As an associate justice, Mr. Fortas voted with the court majority in finding two of the films not pornographic. One key Senate source said today that some middle-of-the-roaders who viewed the films this week had said that they were revolted by what they saw and hinted that they might oppose Mr. Fortas on that issue alone. High time for pornography. An organization whose members included nine members of Congress charged that Fortas, in voting on the court, had, quote, released the greatest deluge of hardcore pornography ever witnessed by any nation. Citizens for Decent Literature came out and inveighed against the judge. And of course, remember, Fortas can't explain any of this because he, he was claiming special immunity under the Constitution from answering questions about the decisions they made under the, under the idea of separations, uh, separation of powers. James Eastland, the Democrat from Mississippi, who was the chairman of the committee, basically got sick of these responses from Fortas and compared him to hoodlums who, quote, take the fifth to avoid self-incrimination. Well, that's not very nice. Sam Irvin kept after him, too, Democrat who becomes the hero of the Watergate hearings goes at at Fortas on this specific point about the separation of powers. This argument on the separation of powers just won't do because the Supreme Court has constantly gone into the actions of the executive and the votes of senators. In other words, if you're not holding to the separation of powers in what you do, you can't then hide behind the separation of powers for the purposes of not explaining why it is you do what you do. Irvin finally gave up, gave up and said, quote, you can't tell us anything about the past and you can't tell us anything about the future, which means you can't tell us anything. Now, that's not his accent. You'll have to go into YouTube and listen to the great Sam Irvin's accent. So by September, it's really looking grim for Fortis, the American University thing being the biggest problem. Johnson lashed out, this again, according to Califano, lashed out at his aides at a meeting to review the headcount of the Senate. We're a bunch of dupes down here, said the president. They've got all the wisdom and all the sagacity is reposed up there. They're just smarter than we are. We're a bunch of ignorant, immature kids who don't know anything about this. They're whipsawing us to death because they're dragging their feet. We've got to do something. Well, in the end, Fortis actually gets favorite voted out of the Judiciary Committee of ele- uh, by vote of 11 to 6, but that simply initiated the real round of voting on the Senate floor. And this is when the filibuster kicks in. For four days, a long, winding talk. And while the filibuster is going on, this is when Johnson loses the second linchpin of his 
support. Everett Dirksen pulls out the rug from under Fortas and said he would not support the move to stop the filibuster. And he said he wasn't sure that he was going to vote for his nomination at all because of a court ruling on the death penalty. Dirksen, basically, the court had, um, there was a six to three ruling on capital punishment handed down last June, in which Fortas voted for the six majority. And the decision in Witherspoon versus Illinois declared unconstitutional the state system, that is to say, Illinois system, of excluding from juries in capital punishment cases all prospective jurors who express conscientious scruples against the death penalty. Dirksen didn't like the, the ruling, was going to punish Fortas for it. And so finally, there's a cloture vote to, to shut off debate. And the cloture vote is 45 yes to shut off debate and 43 no, far short of the two-thirds needed at the time to break off a filibuster. By the way, that tally to end debate, so the 43 who were against, but essentially you can assume were against a Fortis, 24 of them were Republicans and 19 were Democrats, which gives you some idea of how much the politics has changed from, from now where everybody votes just along party line. So well, first on the question, was it a filibuster? There is some historical question about whether it was really a filibuster. The question has relevance because Democrats have filibustered Republican nominees like during George W. Bush's presidency, Miguel Estrada was, um, and they did so arguing that the Fortas case showed that it was okay for, for the Senate to filibuster judicial nominations. Estrada was up for the Court of Appeals, not Supreme Court. But nevertheless, they used Fortas, Democrats did, as a prop or as a as a historical proof that it was okay for them to to filibuster. Now, the difference, of course, is that Estrada got 55 votes on the cloture vote, so Republicans could claim that they had a majority support, clinging to the idea that judges should be elevated by a simple majority. The difference with Abe Fortas is he didn't get the majority. And it's a bit of a distinction without a difference because all of the news coverage and all the clips I've been reading in preparation for this, the Washington Post on September 26th, for example, has a headline that says Fortis debate opens with a filibuster. All of the, the clips refer to this as a filibuster. So Fortis basically, Johnson is doesn't know what to do and Fortis resigns, basically says, take my name out of the running. He stays on the court but doesn't ask to be elevated to the chief justice. And he writes a letter to Johnson that's pretty peppery. Here's one news account. The letter, somewhat surprisingly, is of the kind that might have been discovered in the private papers of a president after he left office. It is not the kind of letter that helps the court, the president, or the Senate get around the building constitutional crisis. For example, the justice, that would be Fortas, characterized the Senate filibuster as an attack on the court and described some of the attacks as, quote, sometimes extreme and entirely unrelated to responsible criticism. At another point, Mr. Justice Fortas told the president that he could avert the danger of harm to the court and the nation as a result of the filibuster only by requesting that his name be withdrawn. A Senate minority already sensitive about criticism of its behavior in the Fortas case finds itself in his letter the object of deep personal resentment. A little historical coda. Nixon forces had been telling Republicans that there was another shoe to drop about Fortas, and afterward, uh, Life magazine revealed that Fortas had accepted another $20,000 fee from a family foundation of Lewis Wolfson, whose, convic- whose conviction for stock manipulation had come before the court. So Fortas had returned the money, but Washington was all a Twitter about this, and then there were other revelations that loomed, and ultimately Fortas would, uh, would resign during Nixon's administration, and hopefully one day we'll retell that story in another fascinating episode of Whistle Stop. But let's tie a bow on this one if we if we might. Here's uh, Clark Clifford and, and how he puts the event in historical perspective. 
It was a tragedy not only for Fortas, writes Clifford, but for the nation. As it turned out, the nomination of Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice was the high watermark of American liberalism on the Supreme Court. It was now impossible for the president to send up another name during the remaining time in office. Accordingly, the selection of a new Chief Justice was held over to the following year and fell to Richard Nixon. His choice of Warren Burger began a historic shift towards a more conservative court. The defeat of Abe Fortas gave rise to something called the Thurman Rule, the idea that at some point in a presidential election year, the U.S. Senate would not confirm the president's nominees to the federal judiciary, except under certain special circumstances where everybody loved the the nominee. And of course, in today's environment, nobody loves the nominee, even if they previously said they loved the nominee, which was the case with Merrick Garland, who uh, Orrin Hatch, Republican of Utah, had praised when he was appointed to a lower court, was not beating down the doors to make sure that Merrick Garland got a hearing when Barack Obama nominated him to the Supreme Court. So there was not an actual rule in the Thurmond rule, but it grew out of Thurmond's opposition to Abe Fortas. And because Fortas went down, the rule kind of took on a life of its own. But both parties have invoked it, which means it's not a rule, it's just a convenience. And they've done it whenever they've reached for some pretext to make their lowly political behavior seem as if it's being dictated by the most venerable Senate traditions of the American Republic and wise dealings. But of course, it's just merely to use whatever tools are possible to protect their point of view. So it's mostly been tested on the question of lower court appointments. And Glenn Kessler and Aaron Blake of the Washington Post wrote a good piece noting that basically senators of both parties, Mitch McConnell on one hand, Republican Pat Leahy, the Democrat have frequently flip-flopped on the issue of judicial nominations in presidential election years, alternately invoking and denouncing the Thurmond rule depending, of course, on which party controls what. So in 2004, when Bush was president, Orrin Hatch dismissed the rule, saying, quote, Strom Thurmond unilaterally on his own when he was chairman could say whatever he wanted to. But that didn't bind the whole committee, and it doesn't bind me. Conversely, in 2008, Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, had invoked the rules saying that the Senate should not act on any judicial appointments made by Bush in his last year of office. In response, the Bush White House spokesman said the only thing clear about the so-called Thurman rule is that there is no such defined rule. Kessler and Blake conclude that, quote, both parties can be viewed as hypocritical, situational, and prone to flip-flopping, depending on which party holds the presidency and or the Senate. Of course, the Thurman rule comes up again in February of 2016, after the death of Antonin Scalia, when Obama said he would nominate a candidate for the open seat, and that nominee, Merrick Garland, didn't make it to the finish line, of course. Speaking of finish lines, reflect briefly on... President Johnson. At the start of his presidency, out of tragedy, Johnson had seized the political moment. He'd used the dead president's legacy to pass legislation from the Civil Rights Act to the tax cut to Medicare and launch the Great Society programs to eradicate poverty. But in the end of his presidency, Johnson was enormously unpopular, and the Fortis Gamble was a poignant defeat that seemed to sum up the entire last stage of the Johnson presidency. With a penchant for inside personal deals, the president had hung himself with one of those deals and relationships. He had picked his oldest buddy and tried to pack the court with another of his buddies. He thought his legislative talents and his wiles and Senate customs that he knew so well would protect him and give him the victory, and he misread it all. He could have picked a more Republican choice to get Fortas in, as Clifford had suggested, but he'd kind of tried to shoot the moon, and he couldn't make it happen. So not only in the end was his legacy not protected, but he slid into the end of his presidency trying to make a last spasm grab for power, which could have elevated him, but that last hurrah 
demonstrated that in the end, he was just too weak. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com. Or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. And that's good. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who knows Abe Fortas like the rest of us breathe air. Thanks to Brian, and thanks also to Izzy Road for helping me read through some of these PDFs. So many of them. So much wonderful research, but they hurt an old man's eyes. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistlestop. For those of you who've asked for the bibliography, here are a few of the books from which some of this has been drawn. The Glory and the Dream by William Manchester. Counsel of the President by Clark Clifford. Flawed Giant by Robert Dalek. An American Melodrama, The Presidential Campaign of 1968 by Lewis Chester, Godfrey Hodgson, and Bruce Payne. The Year the Dream Died, Revisiting 1968 in America by Jules Whitcover. The Johnson Treatment by Jack Bell. The Twilight of the Presidency, George Reedy. The Triumph and Tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, The White House Years by Joe Califano. Fortis, The Rise and Ruin of a Supreme Court Justice by Bruce Allen Murphy. Strom Thurmond and the Politics of Southern Change by Nadine Cohotis. For Whistlestop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again in two weeks.